Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Just pray with me one more time as we get into that. Father, we need your help to see what you have for us in your word this morning. Jesus, give our distracted minds clarity and help us to see the hope and beauty of following you in the face of rejection, knowing you were rejected for our sake. Spirit, because of the grace given to us in the gospel, work within us. Open our minds and hearts to receive your word this morning and be changed by it. Amen. Well, this past summer, a couple of guys from here invited me to go on a hike. I had heard rumors uh, that the hike was difficult, but when they asked, well, rather coerced me uh, into going, uh, both of the guys assured me that I could do it. When the morning arrived and the hike began, I quickly realized two things. The hike was far steeper than I had anticipated, and uh, that my companions uh, did not realize just how terrible of shape I was in. Uh, So, for those of you who haven't had the privilege of laughing at my expense yet, I made it approximately two-tenths of a mile up Mount Sentinel on my first attempt before insisting that Tyler and Paul, who was up here this morning, uh, go on without me while I sat down on a rock thinking I was going to die. (laughs) Fast forward to just a few weeks ago, I asked some of the guys involved in GCF to hike Sentinel on a Saturday morning. Despite my utter failure the first time, I found myself wondering if armed with a better knowledge of the pitch of the trail, I, I wondered if I could do it. Now, I don't tell you this this morning to humbly brag about my physical accomplishments. I did the hike, but don't be too impressed. I barely finished it, and most of the guys who were with me seemed like they had just taken a leisurely stroll around Karis Park. One of the guys actually did the whole thing in jeans. But with the knowledge and reality of what lay in front of me, I was no longer shocked but knew that this is exactly what any would-be hiker of Sentinel should expect. It's steep. And in our passage today, Jesus, on his journey toward the cross, sends out a group of 72 of his followers to proclaim the kingdom of God to villages and towns ahead of his arrival. But in his sending, the sovereign Lord of the universe doesn't want his disciples to be taken off guard when they encounter trial. He promises their provision at every turn, and he gives great hope to the 72. But he also prepares them for the difficulty they will face in following him. So our main point today is that disciples have hope to endure hardship in labor for the gospel because of of the promised harvest and their union with Christ. I'll say it again. Disciples have hope to endure hardship in labor for the gospel because of the promised harvest and their union with Christ. And we'll look more closely at this idea in three points. The Lord of the harvest in verses 1 and 2, the laborers in the harvest in verses 3 through 15, and the landmark in our labors in verse 16. So read again with me from Luke 10, 1 and 2 as we look at our first point, the Lord of the harvest. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So here, the after this in this text calls us to remember what has come before, directly tying these verses to the immediate context. So I'd like to look back at some of what had happened just prior to our text this morning so that we can get our bearings a little bit. Chapter 9 of Luke contained not one, but two times where Jesus told his disciples that he was going to die as a substitute for their sins and then defeat death in his resurrection. With his face set toward the cross, Jesus shows himself to be the Lord. Chapter 9 also contains the transfiguration, where Jesus' physical appearance is transformed before the disciples in blazing glory, clearly portraying his divine nature. And in this same instance on the mountain, God the Father speaks to three of the disciples, thundering from the mountaintop, saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. In this event, God the Father audibly affirms Jesus' sonship and authority. Luke wants us to walk away from that event convinced that Jesus is the Lord. Then, chapter 9, which we looked at, uh, the end of chapter 9, which we looked at last week, ends with one of the hardest teachings to date in Jesus' ministry, where three different men excused themselves from following him by having their priorities out of whack. Jesus issues a stern warning that whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. It is after this that Jesus appoints the 72 to be sent out. So when Luke draws our attention to Jesus as Lord, saying, after this, the Lord appointed, and again, pray to the Lord of the harvest, he wants us to see that Jesus is the one with the authority to call people to himself and then to appoint them to service in his name. As good readers, we ought to have ringing in our ears the words of God the Father ripping through the clouds, listen to him. So here in verse two, when Jesus refers to himself as the Lord, uh, the Lord of the harvest, what, what harvest is he talking about? What is this? Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say the fields for sowing are plentiful. He doesn't say the seeds have been planted, so go water. Now he says the harvest is plentiful. Now I'm not a farmer, but the use of the word harvest tells us it's actually time to gather in the crops. And the Lord of the harvest says there's much to gather. Jesus has prepared a plentiful harvest of people chosen for salvation, waiting to hear the good news. What does this plentiful harvest look like? Look at John 10, 16, where Jesus tells his disciples, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Or later on in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, John sees this great multitude around the throne of God in heaven. They're singing to Jesus, and they're singing, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
This harvest that the Lord has prepared consists of those ransomed and purchased by his blood for his possession, who have not yet heard the gospel and therefore not yet repented of their sins and believed in Christ for salvation, but who will repent and believe because they have been spoken for by Christ's death on the cross. I'll bet that you've never heard the gospel compared to WWE. If you haven't heard of WWE wrestling, it's not wrestling, and I'm not condoning that you watch it here. Uh, it, this is a bizarre form of acting. Um, I looked it up. There is a predetermined outcome of every single one of these matches. Um, there's a chosen winner. Long before one of these spandex-clad, goofy gentlemen step into the ring to wrestle with others. Um, in his promise of a plentiful harvest, Jesus is promising his disciples that the whole thing is rigged. In his sovereignty, he has chosen an abundance of people for salvation whom he is drawing to himself. There is no shortage of people ready to hear the gospel, just believers willing to speak it. Consider some numbers with me this morning. We are meeting today with two to 300 Christians to worship Jesus together, loudly and publicly. We have a team of elders who lead well in their shepherding. They teach the word of God publicly and privately. We have weekly men's and women's Bible studies, discipleship groups, and biblical counseling, where we experience gospel change in all of life together. We have access to loads of resources on the Sovereign Hope website alone, aimed at deepening our love for Jesus and our understanding of the gospel. We meet weekly or bi-weekly for community groups where we encourage one another and point each other toward Jesus. We have Bible studies scattered throughout uh, campus at the University of Montana where students can come and learn who Jesus is and what he wants from them. We share the gospel publicly and usually without backlash, and we disciple students with open Bibles sitting in coffee shops on campus. I looked it up this week, and it is likely or possible that there are around 35 so-called evangelical churches in Missoula alone. Now, these numbers might sound really generous, so just bear with me. This could represent possibly up to 20,000 professing Christians in a city, in a city of 74,000 people. Now again, if that's, if that's too generous, if you, don't, if you don't buy that, let's assume it's just a quarter of that number meaning there are 5,000 professing Christians in Missoula alone. Contrast that with the Arain people in Pakistan. This is just one of the world's 7,000... 417 unreached people groups. An unreached people group is defined as a distinct ethnic group containing less than 2% evangelical Christian. This means they have little to no access to the gospel. They've never seen a Christian church. They don't have a Bible. They've never met a believer. There are 11 million Arain people and not a single known Christian. If a massive bomb dropped in their region of Pakistan tonight, which is entirely possible, every single one of those people die and are condemned to an eternity apart from God. No one has gone. 
And we know from Revelation 5 that Arain people will be represented around the throne of God in heaven. Jesus has purchased Arain people with his blood. So just as the harvest was plentiful when Jesus sent out the 72 to towns and villages on the road to Jerusalem, today the harvest is plentiful among the Arain. And today, in the other 7,416 unreached people groups across the globe, the harvest is plentiful. People are there waiting to hear the good news that Jesus has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. But no laborers have gone, and this ought to devastate us. So we should go. And you'd think that that would be Jesus' first follow-up to the disciples. The harvest is plenty. The laborers are few, so go be a laborer. But Jesus wants his followers to be keenly aware of who does the work and who gets the credit. Look again at the second half of verse 2. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus is the one who prepares and sends laborers into the harvest. We conclude our staff meetings each week by saying the things that we're trying to do are things that only God can do. So what are some encouragements from the week? In the same way, Jesus calls his disciples in verse 2 to remember that reaching the plentiful harvest is not a merely human endeavor, relying on human means and schemes to accomplish his purpose of reaching the lost. No, the things he's sending the disciples to do are things that only God can do. So why is there still a shortage of laborers? If we consider all that is to come in our passage, we see some possible causes of the laborer crisis as Jesus prepares his disciples for both provision and rejection as they go out. Which brings us to our second point, the laborers in the harvest. Read again with me from verses 3 and 4, where we'll see some possible threats to our obedience in laboring. Jesus says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Not only has Jesus prepared a harvest of people who will respond, and not only has he provided laborers for that harvest, but he will provide for their every need, so that the disciples will be single-mindedly focused on the task at hand. Just as a helpless lamb among vicious wolves would have no hope but to depend on its shepherd for provision and protection, so the 72 are to go into the world depending on Jesus and his people for everything they need. He tells his disciples not to worry about bringing a bag of cash and a suitcase full of extra supplies, nor to worry about booking a room on Travelocity, because being consumed with these preparations will distract them from the reason that they are sent out, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He even warns them not to greet anyone on the road while they're traveling from place to place. Now, in that day, it was common practice to uh, stop as you were traveling and greet fellow travelers uh, with these lengthy conversations. Uh, probably not terribly unlike what you might experience as you're setting up at a campground in the Bitterroot. And this might sound like Jesus is telling his followers to be rude, but this is just a call to single-minded obedience to Jesus. One pastor puts it like this, dispense with the formalities. There is no time for trivia here. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and intimate knowledge of humanity, knows our weakness. 
Hebrews tells us that he was tempted as we are and yet without sin. So he knows full well our predisposition toward distraction from the things that really matter. He knows the internal pull that his followers will feel toward lesser things. He knows that we could easily baptize conversations on the road with spiritual purpose when it's actually just an excuse to put off obeying in the one way that we're called to obey. Can we take a moment to pause and just ask ourselves some honest questions in light of Jesus' warning to his disciples? What are the internal threats in my life that distract me from wholehearted pursuit of Christ and his purposes in the world? Am I so concerned about having a sufficient income to provide for myself and my family or to pay for an adventurous lifestyle that I prioritize my schoolwork and my job over growth in Christlikeness? Am I so consumed with pursuit of that better job and that higher pay to get a bigger house that I disobey Jesus by not sharing the gospel with my neighbors? Am I so driven by my appearance and how others see me that I give less to provide for the advancement of the gospel than to accessorizing myself for my kids with the latest clothing? Am I so distracted and numbed by mundane, fruitless conversations about the weather and sports and music and recreating and entertainment that I fail to seriously engage anyone around me with the good news? And what if, when Jesus sends us out as lambs among wolves, the wolves aren't just external persecutors, but they're actually the competing desires of our own hearts? What if the protection and provision we need from our shepherd isn't entirely external, but the worst attacks actually come from within? Today, Jesus' warning to his followers in Luke 10 applies to us. Today, he is calling us to repent over our distracted, self-oriented pursuits. And because of and through the gospel to reorient our lives around his priorities, his clearly defined purpose for our lives. So back in our text, Jesus prepares and warns the 72 not to concern themselves firstly with what they will eat or what they will wear or where they will sleep and not to get distracted by their social lives, but to know that God has divinely prepared sons of peace who will receive them into their homes and provide for them. Look at verses five to nine where we see this hope of divine provision. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus promises provision in three primary ways, through financial support, food, and shelter. Here, if the disciples say, peace be to the house, and a hospitable person is there to provide for them, their peace will rest upon that person. And if not, their peace returns to them. And they move on, knowing full well 
that the Lord will deliver on his promise of provision through someone else. In verse 7, Jesus wants the sent ones to receive what is put in front of them without sheepishness, um, knowing that their provision is, again, it's not a merely human provision. And so when the goers found a gracious host, they were to stay put with them as a gracious guest and eat and drink what was given to them. Jesus may have had in mind homes in the area that uh, didn't keep strict Jewish dietary regulations, and his permission to the disciples to eat and drink what's offered shows that he intends, again, for them to keep a singular focus on this task of proclaiming the kingdom of God, not getting bogged down in the worry over external temporal trappings of religion. And finally, in the last verse of this section, Jesus gives his followers authority to heal, but not simply for the sake of physical healing. Look at verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The 72 are instructed that in towns, among people who receive them, they are to heal for the sake of announcing the arrival of God's kingdom. The arrival of God's kingdom here is good news with this physical healing pointing toward the greater spiritual healing that is to come through Christ's death and resurrection. So what about for towns and people who don't receive Jesus' followers? And this is the bulk of our passage. Jesus prepares his disciples for the hardship of rejection. Look again with me at verses 10 to 15. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. We see first in these verses that there is an assumption that the disciples will be rejected. There will be towns that don't receive them. He promises it. Like my second attempt up Sentinel, these sent ones should not be surprised when met with trial and rejection. Here the Lord tells them it is a reality of following him. Jesus never minces words about how people will feel about his followers. Rather than giving them a handbook on how to win friends and influence people, Jesus shoots straight with all who would follow him. Look at Matthew 10, where Jesus tells his disciples, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Rather than wallowing in rejection, though, the disciples are to publicly pronounce judgment, walk into the streets, Uh, on these unbelieving towns and wipe off the dust of their feet against them and just move on. What I find striking, though, is that Jesus instructs the disciples to proclaim, just as they did in the towns that received them, nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' instruction to proclaim the kingdom of God to those that receive the 72 and those that reject them brings up this important truth that I think we can't ignore. All of us know, when we are honest with ourselves, that we haven't lived as we ought. We haven't submitted to Jesus. We have pursued our own desires above everything else. 
We have sinned and we deserve punishment for our self-serving life in pursuit of self-sovereignty. But the same Jesus who stood on a mountaintop in divine blazing light in our text from a few weeks ago is not just fully God, but he is also fully man. And he stooped so low as to take on human flesh, to live a life of perfect obedience to the Father. And in today's passage, Jesus is on the course toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, where he will die. He will bear all the wrath of God against sinners who will come to him in repentance and faith. This is the good news the 72 are to proclaim. The kingdom of God is here, and at its heart is a king who is gracious and merciful. The kingdom of good not good uh, sorry, the kingdom of God is certainly good news to all who know their need and who come to him. One pastor says the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If you're here and you have never put your trust in Jesus, we would plead with you to do so today. In doing so, he will raise your dead soul to life, bringing healing to your sin-sick heart. And he will give you peace and hope and joy that you can't even imagine. But the kingdom of God does not just mean grace and peace to all universally. The kingdom of God is judgment for those who reject the king and his message. Here in verse 11 of our text, the arrival of the kingdom of God is extremely bad news. What we know from the context and from Jesus' own words is that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are all cities or regions where Jesus had previously performed miracles. He had preached the good news there. He had demonstrated his power, but the people still rejected him. Look at verse 13. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say or thought to yourself... If only I were alive during Jesus' day, then I would believe. Uh, If only I could have experienced his miracles, his healing, his power firsthand, then I would trust him. As appealing as that logic is, it's just simply not true. The people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum are so hard-hearted, it doesn't matter that the king of God's kingdom is standing right in front of them. These cities were all likely in the same general region, and here are just a few events from the gospel accounts that probably took place in or near this location. These people would have known about these events. The Sermon on the Mount, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, the healing of a paralytic whose friends brought him in through the roof, the healing of the bleeding woman, Jesus raising a little girl from the dead, the healing of two blind men, the healing of a mute demoniac, the healing of the man with the withered hand, and countless Other examples of droves of crowds of people surrounding Jesus and receiving healing. These people saw firsthand Jesus' power. And yet, they failed to turn to Jesus in faith. And the corruption and godlessness of cities like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon are massive. In the Old Testament, there are a handful of cities that represent this sort of overwhelming sinfulness and wickedness. 
and hatred of God. And these three cities mentioned are obvious offenders. One commentator even writes that Sodom represents the quintessence of wickedness in the Old Testament, which was destroyed by divine judgment. Now, Tyre and Sidon show up in Ezekiel 26 to 28, where God, through the prophet Ezekiel, blasts these pagan nations for their overwhelming pride. Hear what uh, Ezekiel has to say, or actually, rather, what God has to say, to say in Ezekiel 28, 6 to 10, as he addresses Tyre. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore, behold, I will bring foreigners upon you, the most ruthless of the nations. They shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? Though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you? You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the foreigners. For I have spoken, declares the Lord. Time won't allow us to look at the Lord's words against Sodom and Sidon, but hear the severity of judgment here against Tyre for their persistent, unrepentant pride. They have mistreated Israel, but the most severe sin they've committed is saying, I am God, as in, I don't, I don't need some God to rule over me. I call the shots. So by the time Ezekiel comes along, the judgment God pronounces on these nations is complete and utter destruction. And if this is the wrath that God pours out on this ancient people, even prior to Jesus' incarnation, how much more severe a judgment for those who reject God now that the Son of God, God in flesh, stands before them. As one commentator points out, the idea here is that increased knowledge or understanding of God's revelation means increased responsibility for what, what we do with that information. We today have the full counsel of God's word in the Bible, something none of these pagan nations had. We have seen not just Jesus' life and teaching and healing and miracles uh, with clarity in the gospel accounts, but we have seen him die an agonizing death in the place of sinners. We have seen his death-defeating resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. We have seen that he has sent his Holy Spirit. We've seen that he has appointed apostles to obey his commands and preach and proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. We've seen the establishment of his church throughout history, and we continue to see multitudes of ongoing conversions, and we see his provision. We have access to God's sweeping plan of redemption woven throughout all of the scriptures. How much more severe will the judgment be on those of us who reject him now? Again, if you are here today and fear that this might be you, we would plead with you, repent and believe in Jesus. Turn to Christ. His mercies are new every morning. And this leads us to our final point this morning, the landmark in our labors. The idea of a landmark is extremely important. I have an amazing memory, but a terrible sense of direction. Ask my wife. Uh, I seem to remember bizarre things like what make and model my third grade, uh, model car my third grade teacher drives, uh, but I seem to lose my own car in the parking lot of Costco every time that I go. 
And so uh, what I have to do is either set off the alarm on the car to find it, which is embarrassing, or I have these memory tricks to help me gain understanding of my location. So when I walk, out, when I walk into Costco, I'm like, okay, I'm parked in the row, 10 red posts to the left of the entrance of the store, but then I come out and I forget whether it was left when I'm facing it or left when I'm coming out. It's all just very confusing. Uh, but I need this landmark. I need something to help me gain my bearings. After Jesus promises provision and warns the disciples of rejection, he provides them with a final encouragement in their going, a landmark to remember who they are and where their worth and their confidence lie. Look one final time with me at verse 16. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. This whole passage that we looked at this morning is beautifully bookended with the comfort of Jesus not only being the Lord of the harvest in the first part, but being their Lord in verse 16. Those who go out into the harvest have union with the triune God of the universe. This means that when rejected, it's not a personal slight to retaliate over but they are to remember that God himself is the one being rejected. And this fact ought to give us great freedom when we share the gospel with others. When we get rejected, we are in the perfect company of Jesus, who was rejected in our place. Even if we are persecuted to the point of death, Jesus died first in our place so that we didn't have to experience the eternal death that we deserved. This verse changes everything for those who proclaim the gospel. We have the rock-solid landmark of knowing we are secure in union with the Father through the work of the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope is not in avoiding persecution. It's not in living under the security of the red, white, and blue. But it's in the untouchable safety of knowing and being known by Jesus. So I want to give us just a couple of points of application today in closing. I think the three primary things that Jesus calls his followers to in Luke 10 are to pray, go, and send. So when Jesus tells the 72 there's no, there's, that there's a laborer shortage uh, for the harvest he's prepared, the first step of obedience to them is to pray and ask God to raise up laborers. Now this is not just a generic call to prayer. But we learn in this passage that Jesus desires for his followers to pray for evangelists and missionaries to be raised up to labor among the unreached. So we're to to pray specific targeted prayers to God for people to go. One of the most crushing indictments on my prayer life I've ever experienced was when a pastor posed the question, if God answered every prayer, for every single person you've ever prayed for to be saved, how many people would become Christians today? In the same way, if God answered every prayer of ours as a church for laborers to be raised up for the 7,417 unreached people groups of the globe, how many people would be going out as missionaries today? I want to point you to uh, the resource that we often have on a slide at the beginning of the services, and that is the Joshua Project's Unreached of the Day app. This is a great resource that just gives specific, concise ways to pray for specific people groups across the globe who, who have no access to the gospel. 
Let us be marked by a desperate pleading with God for laborers to go out from this place. Secondly, Jesus calls his followers to go into the harvest. And we might find ourselves quickly trying to pick and choose which of the three application points we participate in. Some of us might say, ah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a prayer warrior, but I'm not much of a goer. I don't think I'm called to that. Let's not let ourselves off the hook so quickly. Obedience in our passage doesn't end with the disciples sending up a quick prayer. The same people he commands to pray, he commissions to go out. So the prayer for laborers is often a cyclical one, where we pray for laborers to go out, and we get sent out as those laborers. And there are two categories that I think we should think through in terms of going. The first and easiest is that we ought to go locally. How many of us could say with confidence that we have clearly articulated the gospel to a lost person this week? Or what about this month? Or maybe this year? Can you imagine having discovered the cure for cancer and keeping it to yourself? How much more urgent when eternal life is at stake? We have the cure. We have Jesus, the only hope of salvation for your lost friends and family members. But we cannot stop with going locally. It is likely, or at least somewhat feasible, that your neighbor will interact with another Christian at some point in his or her life, even if you were to move. But you know who won't ever meet a Christian? The over 3.37 billion people represented by those unreached people groups I mentioned earlier. They will likely be born, live a full life, and die without ever hearing the name of Christ. That is 42.5% of the world's population. I'm not a numbers guy, and I'm not trying to overwhelm us this morning, but if we can try to just wrap our head around how massive that actually is. The Joshua Project estimates that it would take just 226 laborers to reach the Arain people that I mentioned earlier. Just 226. That is a sliver of the Christians in Missoula, Montana alone. Could you be one of those 226 missionaries to go? What keeps us from going? Is it fear of losing comfort here? Fear of missing family? Fear of persecution? The very worst thing that can happen to a believer is to die, which means the very worst thing that can happen is that you enter eternity with Jesus, free from suffering and sin forever. That's amazing. Let's not be so short-sighted that we think that this life is all there is. Let's live with ambition for the gospel going out. And one final point of application then is to send. Aside from praying and going, Jesus promises goers that he will provide for his means through his people. So certainly this includes praying for those who are sent. That's important. But Jesus actually promises material provision for those going through people. So that's what we're looking at this morning. The church should provide the provision and income needed so that goers can go without getting bogged down in the tangible things they need to fulfill the work at hand. To labor among an unreached people group is difficult enough when well supplied. How much more than if a missionary lacks basic necessities and can't put food on the table? Today, it is estimated, and again, I'm going to give some more numbers, but try to track with me. 
It is estimated that Christians across the world earn about $53 trillion annually. 1.5% of that number is given to any type of Christian cause whatsoever. Far from a tenth. 6% of the 1.5% goes toward anything related to missions. And 1.7% of the 6% of the 1.5% of money that Christians give goes toward reaching unreached people groups. Are we getting the picture that a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of Christian resources are used on this task of reaching the unreached? As those who have received grace and provision generously from God in the gospel, we ought to be sons and daughters of peace, as in our passage today, who provide tangible nourishment and wages to those laboring for the gospel where Jesus' name is not currently known. And I want to end with one final thought this morning. If you're quick to think that praying, going, and sending might not be for you, if you rest on the fact that you're just not called to participate in missions, here is your call, Christian. The harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. Here is your call, brothers and sisters. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are sovereign over all, and you have called us, not only out of darkness and into light, but you commission us back into the darkness of the world with the hope of the gospel. Please raise up laborers from this place. Strip us of the vain pursuits that would keep us from obeying you and help us to endure hardship in following you because of the hope we have of a promised harvest and unbreakable union with you. Amen.